I want to start today by talking about politics. But I, okay, so everybody's like, oh, everybody's not paying attention all of a sudden. What, what, what? I'm not going to get into the politics that we talk about in terms of the presidential politics. I'm just talking about politics as usual, the politics that we find in practically every organization where people are vying for power. The first time I was introduced to politics, I was in late elementary school. And the organization that I was introduced to politics through was the venerable Little League. All right? Little League got me, in a, you know, it, it, it inaugurated the whole thing for me. And so what happened with Little League is I was not a very good player and I did not have a good team. And so my dad volunteered to manage. He, before I quit, he wanted me to have a good experience. And we won. We won two championships. And the people who were on the board were getting a lot of pressure because they'd never had any new blood. And so since my dad had won a couple championships, it was sort of popular at the time, they asked him if he would have a, take a ceremonial position as a vice president. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. And he went on vacation. And when we came back, we found that my father had been elected vice president of Little League. See how it works? Okay, you're already starting down that, that, that path. So he's vice president, but then it got bad. He, he decided, he and my mom talked about it, and he said, it's not that big a deal, I guess I can just do this. So he decided to do it, and then the president of Little League had a job, and the job moved, and he was transferred. And guess what that meant? My father became president of the Little League. And he found out that there were several families who were running the Little League. And they were stacking the teams so that their boys would get on the best teams with their friends. And they were violating all sorts of the out, outdated uh, bylaws. And so my father decided to take a stand. He got a lot of heat, and so did his little boy. And that's why I knew a lot about it. But he persevered, and I'm really proud of him because as the years passed by, he received a lot of praise for what he did for that little league. But it was a crazy ordeal, and from that point forward, I learned that politics are pervasive, really, in, in every organization you can get involved in. It's the way of the world. It's the way people do things. And you find it in sports, you find it in uh, the workplace, you find it in school, you find it... I was going to say, that's, the only place you don't find it is probably the church, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, it happens in the church too. And that's why James is going to be writing about it today. Because James has had some problems with this church. Remember, James is the primary leader of the church with its headquarters in Jerusalem. And the first wave of persecution has sent out these uh, predominantly Jewish Christians to the Roman Empire, and they're starting new churches. And it's not always going well. Remember, he's already been a little tough on them. He said, you guys are showing favoritism to the wealthy and the powerful. You're saying that faith is more important than doing any works to back it up. You're not walking your talk. You want positions of power that you're not qualified for. And your tongues are terrible. The way you talk about each other and say things, that's awful. And so today he's going to talk about it a little bit more. He's going to talk about politics as usual, but he'll address it as wisdom. So say there's really two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom of the world, doing things the world's way, and there's the wisdom of heaven. And we'll find that in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. I'll read it first, then we'll comment on it. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. She's talking about two kinds of wisdom. He will start by talking about the wisdom of the world in verse 14. But in verse 13, he gives us a little bit of an introduction by talking in a general sense about what wisdom, God's wisdom, looks like. And what he says is, he says, wisdom goes along with understanding. And if we understand the Hebrew um, concept of wisdom, they understood that wisdom was not just understanding or knowledge. It required knowledge and understanding. The two came together, but wisdom was actually the practical application of what you have learned. Sounds a little bit like faith in action, right? Which is the name of our series. Once you know what you're supposed to do, then you're supposed to do it. Now, he adds another word here. He says, if you're really wise, you will do so with humility. And the word is a difficult word to translate into English. The best translation, I'm told, is meekness. But meekness doesn't work anymore because meekness now means weakness, right? It's, it's lost its meaning in our culture. And so people have tried the word gentleness, which is closer, but it's probably best to describe. William Barclay was this old, old-time pastor and commentarian, but he has this illustration that he looked into the word and looked into the meaning of it originally, and he says it really is the example of a strong horse that is bridled and under control. Donald Burdick says, it's strength under control. That's what it is. And that ties into what we talked about last week with the tongue. Remember we all talked about the tongue needs to be bridled like a horse, need to keep it under control. We need to keep our lives under control. So what he's saying here is that God doesn't want us to be pansies. He wants us to be strong in our convictions and our beliefs and who we are, but we need to always be submissive to God. And we need to be willing to work with others. So you do what God tells you to do. You, you exhibit faith in action, but you do it in terms of whatever God tells you to do, and you make sure you're working with the people that God has placed in your life. You work with them. Now, the first example he's going to give doesn't measure up to that standard. And that is what we call um, wisdom of the world. And in the wisdom of the world, in this first paragraph, to cut to the quick, he basically says you guys are selfish and you're zealous about it. You brag about it. You justify it. You know, it's just like we say in our culture. You're number one. Look out for yourself. We sing songs about how great we are and how we should love ourselves. Everything should be done for me. And he's saying, that doesn't work. That kind of attitude of always trying to have your way is always, always going to run you into trouble. He says, That is the way of the world. That is earthly. It's the way of the world. It is unspiritual. And you know where it really comes from. These are pretty harsh words. He says it comes from the devil. You make the decision to do it, but that's getting back to the devil is tempting you to be that way. That's not the way God operates. 
And you can't understand it because you're not spiritually minded. Paul says it this way in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, verse 14. Oh, sorry about that. The man without the, the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What he is saying is that if a person doesn't come into a relationship with Jesus, they don't have the Holy Spirit within them, and it's really impossible to fully understand how they should operate. If God isn't working in your life, the most natural thing for you to do is simply to look out for yourself and your own interests. That's, that's just natural. They don't get it. It's hard to understand how a person can be in a relationship with God and still not get it, but they can, and I think they still sin, and they can get their eyes off God and start falling down the wrong, uh, falling in the wrong direction again. And so James says, this, this isn't good. And he says that evil basically leads to evil. If you have evil people behaving in evil ways, you'll have evil results. He says you'll have disorder. And disorder was a Greek word for warfare and anarchy. And that's what happens. That's the exact opposite of what Paul says that we should have in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, for God is not the God of disorder, but he's the God of peace. We should be having peace, but we have disorder, and we can have it even in the church, can't we? And the question that we might ask is, is how? How can this be? And the answer is one word with three letters. Sin. We're all... We're all perfect people. If you're going to base your faith on a church or on a person, you're going to always be disappointed. Our faith has to be on Jesus Christ. He's the one that we, we trust in. So we have the tendency to sin, and we have to keep that sin in check. But if we don't keep that sin in check, it just gets passed down, and the evil gets passed down from generation to generation. I think what happens sometimes is churches get started, and they get going, and they say, hey, we want you guys to serve as leaders in the church. And they say, well, how do we do it? Well, you know, how do you feel like you want to do it? Well, I guess I'll just do it the way they do it at work. Then some other people come in and they say, how do we do this leadership? Well, do it like the guys who were before you. And then several generations pass and they say, boy, you know, how do, why do we do the leadership the way we do? Well, that's because we're a Bible-believing church and that's what you do. But they never consulted the Bible and never had any training. And it just picks up and it develops over a period of time. Now, don't be deceived here. Don't think that they don't have wisdom. They still have wisdom. But it's not the wisdom of the Lord, the wisdom of heaven. It's the wisdom of the world. It's a deceitful, crafty wisdom. Often it's passive-aggressive. I've seen, sadly enough, in churches through the years, for an example, where they'll, they'll go around and they'll, they'll try to see who they want for leadership. They'll pick their own friends put their own friends on the board, have their own agendas, have backroom meetings, make sure people aren't present when they vote on certain things, triangulate two people against another, talking behind their back, how can we get this guy off? Let's spread some rumors on this person. And by all means, don't let anybody else know in the church what we're doing. It always has to be a secret. No transparency. So have you guys seen that ever happen? You know, I was thinking about giving a very profound illustration at this point to help you understand this. And then I got to thinking, I could probably pass a mic around 
And probably every single person in this church has been in a church or has heard of a church that has operated in this fashion. And certainly everybody here can tell the story of what it's like at work or sometimes even in the home. Politics as usual, the way of the world. So what do we do with this? I think the best way to combat error is with the truth. And that's what James does. He says, this is where you're falling short. Now let me show you what you can do to do it the right way. So let's not concentrate anymore on the negative. We know it's there. We know what it's all about. We've established it. What should we do? And let's take a look at the wisdom of heaven. He says it's a wisdom that comes down from heaven. It doesn't come from hell. It doesn't come from the devil. It comes from God. And he goes on to describe it. And it's interesting how he describes it. He uses seven adjectives. And in the Greek language, they have almost a metrical rhythmic sound to them. And that's on purpose to try to grab our attention. They're also very similar to the fruits of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. The most important of all is the first one that he gives, that we should be pure. And we'll see that everything kind of falls under the banner of purity. And what he basically means by being pure here is that it's the opposite of doing things selfish. It's being unselfish, and it's being moral, and it's trying to do essentially what is right. The last word in the paragraph talks about righteousness. And I believe the simplest way to understand it is that we need to do what is right. We need to do what God tells us to do in the Bible, and we need to be really people of purity that are really trying to do the right thing. And if we try to do the right thing, there are several things that should come out of that. One is we should be peace-loving. When we say that we're peace-loving, that means that we don't like conflict, but it doesn't mean that we run away from conflict because you can't have peace unless you have conflict sometimes but we do it in a sensitive way. And our purpose, anytime we have conflict, what's the goal? Not to conquer, but to bring peace. We're always seeking peace because that's what we love. That's what we want to see reign. We're considerate. Considerate is an interesting word. At that time, a lot of Hebrew people didn't read Hebrew anymore. And so they decided to translate the Old Testament into Greek so they could read it because Greek was the predominant language. And so they made a translation which has been very helpful for us in history called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this word considerate is used several times in the, this Greek, New Te Greek Old Testament and it's used for God in translation. It's translating words that talk about God as the king and how he really should be stern and punitive and tough with us but yet he's loving and kind and generous. God doesn't insist on the, his prerogatives, but he lays aside his rights to minister to us. And we ought to be the same way in our relationship with one another. We don't insist on our rights. That's what we do in the United States of America, but that's not what we're supposed to do in our relationship with one another. That's how we have problems. When every, if everybody gets their rights, nobody gets their rights. And so we have to be able to see that. He goes on and he says that we should be in submission. And the word submissive here means that we should be people that are willing to work things out with others. We're willing to work with others and give in where we can and, and do what people would ask us to do as long as we're not asked to do something that's not theologically true or not true with the Bible. We're supposed to work with people and do everything we can to
to make things work. We're collaborative. We're cooperative. Those kinds of words would come out of that. We're full of mercy. We talked about mercy earlier. We're kind people. We, we want to take care of other people. We're always ready to do what we can take care of the other people. And this should result in good fruit, that we're just doing good things for people. Impartial means basically that we are unwavering in our commitment to God and to his people. And sincere means, and this is an important word, that we really mean it, that we're genuine and we're not faking it. How many times have we seen people that say, oh, I love you, next thing you know, they stab you in the back, right? It needs to be sincere. It needs to be real. It needs to be unpretentious. We're not faking it to make it. Um, we're real people here, shooting straight with one another. And that's what he's saying should be happening in our relationships with one another. Now, the results of that are that we will become peacemakers, like Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says his peacemakers will be honored in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And the idea is that we're supposed to make peace. If we, if we have righteousness, if we have uh, a harvest of righteousness, that means that we're going to have peace. So we pursue it with peace, and we maintain it with peace. Because a harvest, and some of you here are farmers, harvest is dependent on climate, right? And a spiritual harvest, a healthy harvest within the church, is dependent on a good climate, good conditions, and a good culture. It needs to become a culture within every group of people. So this becomes the way we do it. We no longer do it the way of the world, but we do it the way of heaven. And that brings about righteousness, right living, and right living brings about peace. Peaceful living brings about righteousness, and it all comes together. That's where we want to be. Now, I've been very pleased with how well we have done as a new church. We've had our problems. Uh, we've had little things that we've had to take care of here and there, but thankfully, by God's grace, things have gone well. But I want to do this, and I know some people may be visiting even for the first time, but I want to speak to you more today as we, we get into the rest of it as a pastor. I mean, I'm always speaking to you as a pastor, but I mean as a pastor of this church, as a lead pastor in this church, I think this is really important for us. It's a good time for us to have a little bit of a pep talk, if you will, and talk about what we're shooting for and what I think in many ways we're doing, but we need to maintain and grow in because we can always grow in it. And that is to be this kind of church, the church that James described. I want to start by being honest with you about something that I didn't understand for a long time. Maybe you figured it out before I did. I discovered that there is no such thing as a healthy church. Did you know that? There's no such thing as a healthy church because churches are made up of sinful people, so it's not possible to have a healthy church. There's always going to be at least one person who's having a problem with their sin, and it affects others. There are two kinds of churches primarily. There are those that deal with the drama and those that don't. Those who pay attention to the sin and those that don't. And if you ignore the sin, you've got problems because if you, don't, if you don't take care of the sin, it'll grow. Sin's a lot like weeds. I cannot pay attention to my weeds, and that's nice. Maybe read a nice book or spend some time with my wife or go out rafting, but when I come home, what happens? They're still there. You've been over my house. <laughs> so so sin, the weeds are a bad thing. And we don't want to have spiritual weeds among us. And so we have to deal with them when they happen. People say, well, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I don't want my feelings to be hurt. Then in the end, everybody gets hurt. So James is modeling for us 
what we're to do. He, this is a model for us. James calls people out. And he says, you guys, you're straying from what you know is true. We need to get back. We need to practice faith in action. We need to be submissive to what God says. And we need to work with one another. This is where we need to be. And it's where we need to stay. It's a culture that we have to develop with each other. Now, what I want to do is go over some applications a little bit differently today, too, in this process. I want to, there's three words that really popped up as I was looking at this to, to me. And so I want to look at those words. Um, and after, after I look at those words, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll describe them a little bit, what they mean for us, and then we'll look at what you might want to do for application. So the first one that came to me out of this is to encourage. We need to encourage. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. It's interesting in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, there's an interesting passage here. It says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We are to encourage each other or help each other to have courage to do the right things. We have to get behind each other and help each other in the process. Now, I have a couple of illustrations today, and I was thinking afterwards, I think I might have used these before, like two years ago when we were talking on 1 Timothy. But a lot of you weren't here then, and if you were, you probably weren't paying that much attention anyway. So I'm going to take the risk of going over them again because I, they really illustrate well, I think, what I'm getting at today. The first one took place many years ago when I was just graduated from college and my wife Carrie was finishing up and we had a big, it was right at the end of the school year, so we had this really big beach party to welcome in freshmen for the college group that we were part of and it was the church that she'd grown up in and she couldn't go because she was um, tying together some loose ends for getting ready for our wedding among other things or a lot of things that were happening, but her sister had never gone before. And she was working, maybe it was your job. You have, yeah, she, was, uh, yeah she, was, she worked in the library, so she had to work on Saturdays. It was a Saturday. You were working, and your kid sister, Jill, whom I'd known since she was 15, she was going into her freshman year in, in college. So I said, well, why don't you come with me? I mean, they had 500 people in this college group. So this was this huge picnic. They took us out in buses. We went to the beach. We got out there, and Jill and I knew a few people were talking, and nobody talked to us. And everybody was separated. And we said, ah, how can we connect? They started a volleyball tournament. Jill was 5'9", and she was a, had played volleyball in high school. She was a gifted athlete. So I said, hey, maybe you could teach us a little bit about volleyball, and we can get a team together. So we got a team together of people we mostly didn't know. This is the same, very similar to Bruce Bochy when San Francisco Giants in 2010 had their misfits. We were the misfits. Most of us weren't really great athletes, never played volleyball except for her, but we all got together and we said, hey, let's really have fun. And if somebody messes up, cheer them on anyway. Just try your best, and we'll, we'll assume that you are. If somebody does well, let's go crazy. Let's give them high fives and hugs, and let's, let's just encourage each other and have a good time. And because we figured we we're going to lose anyway, but let's have a fun time doing it. And so we went out there, and we started having fun, and we won the first two games. And next thing you know, we were like best friends out there, even though most of us had never met each other before, and we were really having fun. So then we had to go against the all-star team. Now, the all-star team was headed up by this guy who was the intern for the department. He was getting paid to be an assistant to the pastor. He would recently graduated from Bible college. He was a very good athlete, and he got together the very best athletes he could find, 
put them on a team, and you know, just went around and systematically destroyed everybody. And so we knew that was going to happen to us as well. So we said, let's just have a good time. Well, we got a couple points, and he was embarrassed, and he got angry. He started yelling at the other guys on the team. They started yelling back at him. Everybody started playing for themselves. They self-destructed, and we won the championship. <laughs> and he was so mad that his face turned beet red, his veins were popping in his neck, and he kicked the ball out of play. Today, I think he is the chairman of the board of elders at a church or a pastor. I don't know, but you wonder. Do you see the example of the two, though? It's always stuck with me, that example, because our team should have been destroyed, and the only reason we won is because we were encouraging each other. And the other team had all the tools, but they self-destructed because they were fighting against each other in the way of the world. Even though some of these guys, you know, had training, and they were... They, you know, spiritually they should have been superior too, but they self-destructed. They start fighting against each other. I want to be like the team of misfits. I want to be the people that just love each other and care about each other. Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. He's the best example of a pastor that we have in the scriptures. He built the church in Antioch, according to Acts 11, primarily on encouragement. Encouragement is when you give courage to other people. It means sometimes giving them a swift kick, um, exhorting them, lifting them up, but, but also comforting them, supporting them in any way you can. We do that a lot in this church. I'd love to see us do it more. It's pretty awesome when you lift each other up. Who in this room doesn't like somebody to tell you you did a good job? But how often do we tell other people that? I mean, we can, we can thank people for watching your kids on Sunday morning, for taking the time to do that. Say something, you know, when, when one of us speaks, take notes. Come up and tell us what you think, you know, what you learned. Joe, you always do that anyway. <laughs> you can do that with, uh, you know, with the music. Tell the guys, man, you know, Mitch spends so much time picking out songs just to make sure the words are just right. How many times have you talked to him about some of those? How did he get those? What's going on? Or tell the guys they did a good job. Thanking the people that are doing the greeting or the people that are counting the money, the people who are working with youth. Just encouraging people. You know, when you tell them, I, I'm excited to see you. Ask people, how are you doing in reading your Bible and praying? And somebody says, I have trouble understanding the Bible. Well, let me come alongside you. Maybe we can read it together. Let's pray together. Why don't you get in my small group? Let me take care of you. Let me help you out. I want to I love on you. That's, that's what it's all about. If people are having problems at work, let me help you. Well, you know, I've just started with this orchard of mine, you know, this almond orchard. Well, I've been doing it for years. You're my brother in Christ. What can I do to help you out? See, we take care of each other. We encourage each other. We give fist pumps once in a while. We hug people. We don't hug Clifton. He doesn't like to be hugged. You know, <laughs> some people, I hug him. I hug him anyway, but uh, his wife can't. Oh, yeah, there we go, Christy. But... Um, <laughs> But some people don't like to be hugged, so be sensitive to that. But, but we, we encourage each other because here's the deal. When you succeed, I succeed. So we're a team. So when any one of you does really well and you're a great witness at work and you make the employee of the month, Mountain View Church is scored. See what I'm saying? When any one of you has a new baby and that baby is healthy and happy and we see a couple, I know, Chris, Christina may be the next. She's ready to pop in the back here, not, not until after church. But, but, you know, we have these babies, and we, 
that we all, we're all excited, right? Because those are our babies. We're growing, biological growth. But, no, but it's just because we're happy for those kids. You know, we're happy for each family. Their victories are our victories. You, you should want me and be praying for me to do well on Sunday morning so that it will help you. And then you can come back and say, hey, you know, Ron did well. We all did well today. The worship, we all did well. We're looking for each other to do well, and we're finding every way we can to encourage each other. That's what he's talking about in this passage. That's the right thing to do. That's how you find peace is when you're encouraging and lifting each other up. But the second thing he says is there's a little bit of uh, elbow grease involved in this that isn't always easy. It's sacrifice. We need to sacrifice. And several things that he said leads to this whole idea of sacrificing. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 says we should consider other interests, other people's interests more important than our own. When I was in high school, I wrestled. Some of you may know that. Actually, I've talked about it probably too much. Um, but our wrestling team was a team, but most people don't think of wrestling as a team sport. But our coaches made it that way. And the one thing our head coach did that really made it that way, and, and it was probably the thing that most impressed me with his coaching, is at the end of every season, he would get us all together and he would point out the guys that were going ahead to wrestle in the finals and try to get the state championships. And then he would say, look around the room, gentlemen, at the other guys that aren't going. They have no reason to be here. You are only as good as they make you. You are only as good as those other guys make you. If they chose to walk off, you would have nobody to practice with in your weight division. They are here because they're committed to you and they're committed to this team because they want to win a championship and they want you to do well. They'll improve in the process but they're making a sacrifice, and they're the reason we're going to win. Boy, he hit it on the nose. I so appreciated that because I was usually that guy, right? I was for a while. You know, it took a while to kind of get up to that point, and then it made me, when I got up there, you know what? I really appreciated those guys because it had been ingrained in me. It became part of the culture that started when I was a freshman. They did it to win a championship, right? That, Listen, we're in a similar situation. Not everybody can lead, and you can't always get your way, but are you willing to sacrifice your time to help everybody else do well? Is your attitude like John the Baptist who said of Jesus, I must decrease that he might increase? Do you really want to see them do well? Are you willing to sacrifice for them? Because in the end, two things are going to happen. One is I guarantee you we will win the championship and you'll be on a championship team. And number two, the byproduct of it is you'll, you'll grow in your relationship with the Lord and will receive rewards. And many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first in heaven. We have that kind of attitude. We can change this world. That's radical. That's something the world just doesn't do. They do it in the military because people are holding guns. It's the only way they succeed. Imagine D-Day. If the guy said, no, I, I don't think I want to do this, I might get killed out there. Well, yeah, a lot of people did get killed. And if they hadn't done it, where would we be today? And if we're willing to make those kinds of sacrifices to one another, what can we do? What power can we unleash into our world? 
And so I really encourage you to think about how you might sacrifice your time, how you might sacrifice in giving, how you might sacrifice in getting involved in helping with children's ministries or our youth or our worship, uh, finding different ways, getting involved in a small group. We don't, by the way, ask for tons of time here. We don't want you to spend too much time here. We say, come on Sunday morning, get involved in a small group. You know, it, it maxes out at maybe three hours you know, a week, get involved in helping serve, but most of the service is in church. But we want you to be serving in the community, and we want you to be building relationships with other people that know you in Jesus Christ. You know how you, one of the best oikos methods you can do, one of the best ways you can reach out to your neighbors and friends is that they'll know that you're Christians by your love. When they see you interacting with brothers and sisters in Christ in the way that you should, and they see that that's different than what they're accustomed to, that will have an impact on their life. And then finally, I want to talk about character. Several years ago, I met a man who was a church growth expert. Spent quite a bit of time with him, actually. It's a long story, but I, I was spending time with him. I got to ask him a bunch of questions. And I asked him one that was unsettling. I said, can you grow a church without following the Bible? He said, of course you can. You can build anything through marketing and through popper techniques. You can build anything. Does that make you uncomfortable? It made me uncomfortable. And one of the things that I've thought of through the years is how important character is. I would rather have character. I would rather have people that are at peace with each other, people that are having fun together, people that are taking care of each other than people that are always trying to see how big can we get. That should not be the goal. Because I'll tell you what happens. When you focus on character, character will lead to growth. It may not always come fast, but it, will, it is the natural byproduct. But if you focus on growth, growth doesn't lead to character. You ever notice that? Growth does not build character. It's not to say that a church can't be really big and have character. But that's usually because the character started at the beginning. Growth by itself doesn't grow character. And I'm frankly really sickened by people who go around when I say I'm a pastor, and the first thing they say is, how big is your church? We're not a small church, by the way. I mean, by the standards of the United States, you know, the average church is like 100 at best. So we're double that already, and we're not even three years. But what is that by you? Who cares if your church is big? If it's not doing anything. And I'm going to tell you something else that really bothers me, and I have to say it's been true in churches I've been in. I've been in the meetings with the leaderships of the church, and I've heard this way too often. The decision needs to be made, and someone will say, how will that affect our attendance and giving? I'm telling you, that is the most important question for many churches. How will that affect our attendance and giving? They want the money, they want the people, and they want to impress the people around them. They want people to perceive that they've got it all together. But if they don't have it all together, and God knows, what does it matter? I don't want that to ever be part of our leadership. We make decisions because we say, what does, what does God say about it? What, do, what does God want us to do in this situation? You see what I'm saying? Very different from the way of the world. 
So let's make that our focus. And, you know, when we ask people, people tell us about their church, not how big are you, but what's going on in your church? Tell me about some of the people. Uh, what are some things that are working really well? Anybody have any real life-changing things happen lately in your church? Those are the kinds of things we ought to be talking about. What's happening in your community? Now, this gets down to these things that we've talked about. And I want you to think in your own life about your own character. How is your character at work, on your team, in school, in church. And there's some things that we need to make sure that are true. We need to be people that are trying to do what's right. How do you know what's right? How well do you know your Bible? Do you go to your Bible when you have to make major decisions? Do you think through what it says? Are you... Are you people that are peace-loving? Are you willing to maybe even hurt somebody's feelings once in a while to try to bring peace? Is that your constant goal, to try to see what can we do to make things more peaceful and more lovable and more caring around here? Are you people that unite people or do you divide people? Do you always have to have your way? It's okay to have your say. In fact, you should have your say. Make sure. In fact, that's one of the worst things you can do is not tell people what you're thinking and talk behind their back. That's insincere. You have an opinion, you tell people, but you understand that your opinion may not always win out. Give your opinion and then be willing to accept it if it's not accepted. See what I'm saying? It's not fair to go around and say, I don't like the way they're doing this when you never said anything. That's the ultimate wimpiness, right? Just be honest, but just understand that you can't always do everything. You know, we try to do the best we can to try to please everybody, but you can't please everybody all the time, you know? So that's kind of where it goes with that. Be, be willing to sacrifice. Love on each other. Take care of each other. When people have kids and stuff, you know, everybody does different things. Take kids in or take care of the kids or take care of people when they're older. Visit them, especially if they're in your small group. Take care of the people that are in your small group. That's why we put them there. Man, be committed to God, to this church, to the people in your life. And be sincere. Be real. Don't fake it. In order to do this, you need the Holy Spirit. If you notice this passage doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit, and yet it talks all about the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't mention him by name. You need God's power to enable you, to empower you to do what God's calling you to do. And that comes when you come into a relationship with Jesus. So if you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus Christ, I encourage you to admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And if you're interested in that, please come and talk to us because there's no greater conversation we could have with you. I personally believe that there is too much politics in our world today. So let's make politics as usual, unusual in our church and in our lives. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for James and for his willingness to talk to us about some tough stuff 2,000 years ago that we're still talking about today. Lord, these things can happen, and um, we, are, we are fallen people. I remember when we first started, Mitch said, you know, one of these days one of us is going to make a big mess up, you know, and we were laughing about that, and, uh, and I think we probably already have. Um, but you've been gracious and helped us through those mess-ups. And it's okay to make mistakes. 
and I pray that when we make mistakes that people will be gracious and understanding and forgiving. Um, but I pray that we could encourage and support each other and really be a team and really be a family. Boy, it would be great to be the church that you want us to be. That's our dream, that's our desire, that's our goal. Lord Jesus, please, through the Holy Spirit, empower that to be here for us. In your name we pray, amen.